So good morning, Church 21. It's so good to be back with you all. I know it's been a while, uh, actually since March. And since March, our family has grown by one additional member. Uh, we're very happy to have had a baby boy. His name is Jackson, and he's, he's healthy and he's well. Um, and so, yeah, thanks for all your sort of congrats on that. And um, he's actually surprisingly strong. I don't know where he got that from. Probably me. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, we're thankful to have had him and had uh, some paternity leave for me around that and maternity leave for uh, my wife. Um, but let me just pray for God's help uh, specifically for this sermon as we go into it. Uh, Lord, would your spirit be at work to be refining our hearts, to be uh, restructuring our lives uh, under your word and in your way? Uh, move in us by your spirit, we pray. Make us open to your conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, and so, uh, where are we? If you've been tracking with us over the past seven weeks, you'll know that we're going through what does it look like to be an emotionally healthy disciple. And we've been doing that every week, looking at a different passage, uh, following uh, the topics in Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality uh, book. And what is emotionally healthy spirituality? Well, it's defined as integrating both the sort of um, uh, contemplative spirituality and emotional health, the sort of uh, vertical and horizontal, if you would have it. If the vertical is the contemplative spirituality, uh, loving God to such an extent that it, it works out and affects how you love your neighbors and yourself, your emotional health, well, that's what emotionally healthy spirituality is. It's that full integration of horizontal uh, and vertical. And so I've heard from many of you um, uh, in our city group and other places, and I've also known for myself that it's, it's uh, been quite a, a helpful uh, course to go through, and, and that's really great. But I'm also aware that there are a couple dangers in a course like this. One of the dangers is that this just stays information, that you become more aware of your emotions, you become more aware of how your past has affected you or the importance of grieving well, but that's sort of it. It just stays at information. Actually, it doesn't move to transformation. The other danger is that, well, you can experience some real growth in your emotional health. You learn to relate to your past better. You learn to process through your feelings in, more, uh, in better and healthier ways. But you can do all that without seeking the presence of God in it. And so the question I would ask you is, in the last seven weeks, have you grown in your awareness of God, of his presence, his love for you? See, the danger is that you can employ all the tools, uh, the, the tools of this book and make it a sort of mere self-improvement plan. You can learn how to, like, you know, love yourself better and make yourself better, but leave God right out of it. And so we have these sort of two dangers, and how do we avoid them? There's the danger it can just stay as information, and there's the danger it's merely a form of self-improvement. How do we avoid them? Let me jump straight to the point. And that is, if you want to be truly transformed, if you want to be transformed in such a, a deep way that it is long-lasting in your life, it's going to require the Spirit of God. 
that true and lasting and deep change, not just emotional modification, but true heart transformation requires the transcendent spirit of God working in you. You can't change yourself. I want to be very uh, clear on that. And so you have these dangers. And yet we know, okay, yeah, it's the spirit of God that brings transformation so how do we connect those things? How do we make it so the Spirit of God can take the information that we've learned and p- apply it and, and minister and massage it into every area of our heart? Well, to do that, what we need to do is create intentional space for the Spirit of God to work it and massage it into every area of our heart. We need what the ancients called a rule of life. A rule of life. I know the word... Uh, rule there, it can be somewhat unhelpful. It's like, is this a to-do list or is this another Jordan Peterson's 12 rules of life? No, that's not what we're talking about. The word rule here actually is connected to the old Greek word for, for a trellis, a trellis in a vineyard. A trellis was something that enabled the vine to grow up tall and strong and be fruitful. If you didn't have a trellis for your vines, then the vines would grow in the ground and they would be susceptible to all the diseases on the ground, to the animals on the ground. And so a vine needs a trellis to grow on. And when I say a rule of life, I'm essentially saying, when I say we need a rule of life, what I'm essentially saying is that we need a way to keep us attached to Christ so we can grow up into maturity in him and be fruitful and strong in that. Right? We need a way to do what Jesus described so beautifully in John 15, a way of keeping us attached, of keeping us abiding in Christ, him, the true vine. And so that's what a rule of life is. I'll define it for you. A rule of life is an intentional plan, a set of practices and rhythms in order so that you can abide in Christ and grow up into maturity in him. A rule of life is an intentional plan, a set of practices and rhythms in order that you can abide in Christ and grow up into maturity in him. But let me be very clear from the onset that the rule of life, this is a means to an end, not the end itself. See, it's so easy to reverse those. It's so easy to make it all about the rule and not actually about abiding in the vine. And to do that, that's moralism. You can get stuck in that. But the opposite is also true. It's easy to, to say, to throw it out loud. Say, I don't need a trellis of intentionality in my life, Jordan. But that's, that's dangerous as well. It's equally problematic. That's a sort of hedonism. And so what we're talking about today, what will be the movement of the sermon is, is how do we put one of these together, an intentional plan so that the Spirit of God can bring transformation in all the different areas of my life? And the different areas that we uh, touched on in this series, right? And so I'll start, I'll do this in two parts. The first will be, why do we need a rule of life? And then how do I build a rule of life? I want to go more into the why. I just basically said, this is what a rule of life is. But why really, Jordan, do we need a rule of life? Right? Because you know, okay, yeah, there is that danger of moralism. You can make it all about the rule, right? But it's equally important to stress that, If you're not intentional, you will end up being discipled by the culture, that there's a sort of default uh, to that. Um, One of the things I love about summer is going canoe camping. It's been several years. We have 
you know, young kids now, but um, there's a river I always love to go to in Ontario. And uh, if you've never been canoe camping, one of the first things you notice when you get into the canoe on the river is that uh, your default position <laughs> is a moving position. You're going downstream. And unless you're intentional, right, unless you actually uh, paddle, you're going to get swept away by the currents around you. You're going to get swept like actually Paul refers to a metaphor like this in Ephesians 4, verse 14. He talks about being tossed to and fro by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And so we want to avoid that. And yet, what I find, and it's, I don't know, it's striking to me, I I guess, that, that so many Christians think they can live their life in a sort of autopilot mode. Right, That you might be intentional, yeah, about maybe the church that you chose. You might be intentional about some of the friends uh, that you have. But so many other areas of your life, the way that you um, use your money, the way that you treat your children, the way that you uh, love your spouse, the way that uh, you use your time, you haven't been intentional about those. You haven't let the gospel inform and reform how you do those. You're no different from the culture around you. You're just living on autopilot, moving along. And when I think about intentionality, when I think about examples of intentionality, I think about one of, one of the great ones in Scripture is the life of Daniel. And so that's why that was our Scripture reading for this morning. It was Daniel chapter 1 in the first 16 verses. And I'm not going to uh, go through all of you know, the verses here today. Um, I'm going to zoom in on a few in particular, but if you have your Bible, you can grab it. <clears throat> but to give you context, in it you have Daniel, and he's a believer in Yahweh, the one true God. Um, and as Daniel's growing up as a young boy, uh, the city he's living in is under siege by the Babylonian Empire. And as a young guy, like maybe 15, it's crushed, it's overthrown, people are killed, burnt down, and he's hauled off to Babylon. It's... Um, He's taken there because he's shown, he shows potential. It's like, this, this guy has the potential. He's smart, right? So we're going we're gonna to re-educate him. We're going to teach him the language and the culture and the religion of the Babylonians. And so he's put in a university there. The re-education project is so um, intensive. This is sort of a colonialist brain drain. But this colonialist project is so intensive. You see in verse um, 7 that the chief of eunuch gives them new names when when Daniel arrives. So Daniel, his name means um, God is my judge. It's actually one of Jackson, our son's middle names. That is Daniel, God is my judge. But when he arrives in Babylon, he's named uh, Belteshazzar, which means may Baal, which is a Babylonian god, protect you. May Baal protect you. You see, this is the extent of the the sort of uh, attempt to to, uh, undermine his identity. And of course, uh, Jerusalem compared to, to Babylon was low culture compared to the absolute highest apex of culture. I mean, Babylon was where it was at. It was a hub of science, technology. Daniel coming into the city, he would have seen one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Um, it was where we have some of our mathematics even today, 360 degrees in a circle, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes an hour. I had a base 60 number system. We get that from this advanced uh, culture. There were thousands of temples to different pagan gods there. 
And so, of course, Daniel, he's coming from this, this low culture. He's cut off from his family, his friends, his culture, his religion, his language. He's put into an intentional re-education program in the best university of the world. And so if you didn't already know this story, you might think, like, man, he's a goner. There's no way he's going to be able to hold on to his faith. The cultural current is just so strong. I think of myself, I think of myself and my wife raising our kids in a, also a relativistic culture, a secular culture. And sometimes that thought can be scary too, right? It doesn't need to be, but it, it can be. It doesn't need to be because of actually what we're talking about today. But it, but it can be. And so we, we ask, how can I create resilient Jesus, falter, uh, <laughs> resilient Jesus followers in the midst of a secular culture like this? How, how even for myself, right? It's not just for our kids. How much do we get caught up into this? We say like, yeah, I want to love Jesus wholeheartedly. I want to be shaped by his word. And yet we, we keep getting sucked into sort of what's been called the digital Babylon. We say things like, yeah, like Jesus said, right? The meek will inherit the earth or one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But then we, we, we take out our phone and we, we scroll through it and we see, oh man, I wish, I wish that could have been my vacation. Or we're in the middle of quarantine. We're like, oh man, did you see? I, I wish I could have a backyard like that for my kids. Or I wish my family was that beautiful. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But you see, the problem in this, it isn't culture. It's not even the, the phone itself, right? No, it's, it's us. That we have disordered hearts that get swept up into this kind of stuff. And so we hear this story of Daniel. We hear this story of Daniel. We think, how did this young man, under such enormous cultural pressure, ever stay firm in his faith? Well, here's the good news for people like us. That it's not about who Daniel was. It was about who Daniel had faith in. It's not about who Daniel was. It's about who Daniel had faith in. That Daniel doesn't do this by his own power. No, he does this rather by intentional dependence on God's power. You see this through the story that's told in the chapter in verse 5, you see that the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. This, of course, would have been top-quality food, Michelin star kind of stuff, different than the rations of Jerusalem in wartime that Daniel would have had. But then it says in verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And there's a time, as you read on in the story, he still gets served this food, and yet he just he doesn't, he doesn't eat it. He only drinks the water, and he eats the bread and the vegetables, but the rest he, he sets aside. And if you're, if you're a kid, maybe you're, you're watching this, kids, and you're wondering, man, why doesn't Daniel, why does he only eat the vegetables? I mean, what is this? And scholars, scholars aren't sure exactly. Maybe it was... Um, the kosher laws, maybe it was that it was food offered to idols. But anyway, what the text says is that it was defiling. And when you think about this, <laughs> this, this struck me as I was preparing this. When you think about this, this is quite striking. Because why wouldn't Daniel want to be defiled? Well, so that he could enter into the presence of God. Well, where was the presence of God 
in the time of Daniel, it was housed in a temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And now Daniel's over a thousand kilometers away, another city surrounded by pagan temples. And there he is being intentional in his appetite. Why? Because he knew the presence of God. He had tasted of the goodness of God. And it was more soul satisfying to him. It didn't even compare to what the king and what Babylon had to offer him. It didn't even compare. And this is what a rule of life is. It was a means to the end of Daniel being filled with the presence of God. Daniel, we see in this, he only prophetically saw um, Daniel only prophetically saw who would come to life, the son of man. That there would be one who would come thousands of years later who would say, I am the bread of life. And out of me will flow rivers of living water. That Jesus was the one who could truly and only offer soul-satisfying goodness. Is that a goodness that you have tasted of? Jesus would go on to say, it's not what goes into the mouth of a man that defiles him, but what comes out of our hearts that defiles us. That it's what's in our hearts that's really messed up. Because what do we do? We go looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. We stuff our appetites with comfort or with image or with uh, possessions, right? And this has a sort of defiling effect. If we, we don't order our appetites, it has a defiling effect on us that are even in this, that our appetites and our desires, they actually become sort of dulled. It's not that, I think C.S. Lewis would say, it's not that we're, we're too strong. It's actually that we're too weak that God doesn't satisfy us in them. We're too weak by being dulled by the wrong appetites. And yet what the gospel says is that our defilement, what Daniel rightly knew, that our defilement, because of it, we couldn't approach the presence of God. And yet on the cross, Jesus took on our defilement so that we could enter into the presence of God. He took on our defilement so that we could have true soul satisfaction in him. So that we could feast on him, him who is the ultimate bread of life. And it's meditating on this. It's enjoying and saturating ourselves in this reality, who God is and what he's done for you. This doesn't dull our desires. This actually refines our desires. It's in this presence of God that true transformation can take place. And yet, many of us, we just don't bother to reorder our lives in this way. We just can't take the time to be bothered to ask, how does the gospel apply intentionally to all these different areas of my life? We're happy to take EHS and leave it as merely information or just sort of a self-help improvement plan at that level, at the modification level. We don't really want to let it go down and work deep heart transformation. Why is that? Why is it that we can pray as Christians, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And yet, even in that, our desire for the presence of God is dull. We, we know things too, like 
if you really want to do something, this is what people say, right? If you really want to do something, you'll make time to do it, right? That's just sort of the way our lives works. And yet, when it comes to God, we, we just don't feel that he's, he's sort of real enough to prioritize him in this sense. And so what's, what's wrong? What's up with us? What, what, maybe you're wondering, why is my appetite so dull for the presence of God? Well, it's dull because of what you feed it. That if you always live your life gorging out on, on sugary and fatty foods, you're going to have no desire for healthy food, right? What you consume actually affects what you desire. There's a sort of feedback loop to desire. And so it's so important that we mention this, that our desire for the presence of God, our wonder about who he is and what he's done can actually be dulled because of what we consume. I'll give you just one example of how that be, can be. Um, think about the habits that uh, you and I might begin our days on. That if we end our days watching violent movies for hours and hours on end, right, or soft porn, we just sort of fill our minds with it. We let them be filled by that. What sort of side effect do you think that has on your view if you're watching a ton of violence of God's justice, or if you're watching a lot of sort of messed up relationships on what a healthy relationship is, or what God's sacrificial love for you is, how do you think that affects your mind? Or if you wake up every morning and you join a sort of Twitter rage, how do you think that affects your ability to slow down and desire to love mercy and walk humbly with the Lord your God? See, in this, I'm not advocating for fear. I'm advocating for intentionality, allowing the gospel to inform habits, even like checking your phone in the morning. Philippians 4.8 would say this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. The default rule of life the habits that we follow, they have the capacity to invigorate and sustain our desire for God or the capacity to doll it away. We see this still in the story of Daniel, right? Since Daniel, he turns down the king food. The official is concerned. Daniel, you're going to be weaker than all of the other king's men. And yet, what do we find in verse 15? It says, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. You see, Daniel, in being intentional to pursue the presence of God with his appetite, he doesn't just survive. He thrives. And so it can be with you and me. This is the purpose of a rule of life, to help you pursue the presence of God, to help you grow up into maturity in Christ. So that was the first part, the teaching part, mostly of this sermon. And now on to my second point. How do we build a rule of life? How do we create habits in our life that will help you um, abide in Christ regularly? Uh, of course, these habits will want to include the spiritual disciplines, the classic ones, the, the absolutely crucial ones like uh, fasting and prayer and Sabbath and scripture reading, these are the critical and necessary ones. If you want to learn more about those, um, there is in particular a sermon that was done in October called uh, Spiritual Disciplines. Go, uh, you can go back on the podcast and check that out. But there is a sense to keep going um, in which 
uh, everything we do is a sort of spiritual discipline. This is something that Pastor John Mark Comer points out, that, um, that our disciplines are habits in that they shape our lives. And by shaping our lives, they're also shaping our spirit. Things like the example I gave of uh, even looking at your phone in the morning. See, that's not something... You probably don't really want to think about that as a spiritual discipline, but in a way it is. It's just not a very helpful one. And so there are areas in our life, there are all areas in our life that we want to infuse the intentionality of Jesus with. Um, And so what I'm going to do for this practical part is really try and give you an example of some of the things I've done in my own life. And like me, everything I tell you is, (laughs) it's a work in progress, right? Um, each one of your rules of life will always be like you, also a work uh, in progress. Um, actually, before I tell you about my rule of life a bit, let me just break down how I got uh, sort of to here. Uh, last year, 2019, um, I, at the beginning of the year, I had done sort of uh, goals for the year. And then at the end of the year in December, Sandra and I sat down and we reviewed them. And out of all the goals, there were some 10-something, 11 goals, I don't know. There was really only one goal that I came close uh, to meeting. And that really got me thinking, like, what is it that I need to change? And there were several problems here. One of them was that I set yearly goals, but I didn't break it down to monthly, uh, weekly, uh, and daily uh, goals or targets. And so um, I didn't break it down. That could be one tip for building a rule of life. The second was that I didn't start small. I was sort of trying to be a monk right out of the gate, you know? Um, not, Not really, but it's that idea, like, if... If you've never read the Bible before, don't try and read through the whole thing in 40 days. Like, start with a chapter a day. Start with something that is uh, realistic. That's something where you're at, where your capacities are at. Something, you know, you can chew on. So uh, I didn't break it down. I didn't start small. Um, Another was that I didn't really write my goals down. I didn't place them anywhere visible. So I had no way to remind me. So, um, you know, here's tip three. Uh, Write your goals down. (laughs) Um, Number four was... uh, I viewed them as goals and not targets. There was a sort of law about it that I was trying to reach this, you know, this, this, this goal rather than it being a habit of the heart that actually reshaped me into enjoying more of the presence of God. And so I sort of, I had lost sight of what is the purpose in all of, all of this, right? And what I was doing. And the purpose of a habit was to purposely and slowly of habits, right, as opposed to goal, purposely and slowly pursue becoming more like Jesus in my life, right? Um, and so these are some some tips so far. Uh, break it down. Uh, start small. Uh, uh, write it somewhere. And, you know, set, set habits, not so much goals. Um, but let me give you uh, some more from my own example. And, of course, this is, this is my rule of life. This is not your rule of life. So don't hear me saying this and saying, okay, you've got to take this and do it as I do. It won't work because I'm different than you. The point of this, of course, is, is to help you grow up into maturity in Christ, help you to abide in Christ the vine. And so, yeah, that's, that's the point of all this. So I'll, we'll look at daily, uh, weekly, monthly. Um, so daily, 6.30, uh, wake up. I try not to check my phone. Um, I try to get right into uh, scripture reading and prayer. And this is something I already mentioned, but there's an illustration that I found really helpful in this. And that is, I heard somebody talk once about getting up super early in the morning. And, well, I've seen, I've done this myself, but give this illustration. Early in the morning in front of a lake, right, it's, 
it's like glass. You can see the sky above it, reflected on it. You can even sometimes see deep down into the lake. But before too long, if you wait as the morning progresses, the sort of wind kicks up, the birds begin to come and lie, you know, land on the lake. And so there's, there's something about the morning that brings a sort of uh, depth and, and, and clarity to our minds that form beautiful bookends on our days, right? Like Psalm 1 talks about um, how uh, the righteous man meditates on the law of God day and night. And for me, for so much of my life, right, starting my day on social media was sort of like just ripping a sea dew across that pristine, morning, glassy uh, lake. So I get up, I read my Bible, I, I note down the things that stand out to me, and I take time to pray over those things. Sometimes I'll include a devotional book with that. Uh, by 7.30, uh, making breakfast, sit down, eat it with the kids. Uh, Sandra and I will sometimes go over a verse of the day uh, or of the week, really, that we're memorizing. And then we'll pray for each other uh, in the day. Uh, then around 8.30, I'll go to the office, which in uh, COVID-19 is just down the hall. Um, and there I'll look over my daily schedule. Um, if I have to arrange anything or pray about anything that's giving me anxiety, I'll, I'll do it then. And then throughout the day, as I'm working, I'll, I'll take breaks to clear my head, um, especially um, in, in certain pastoral situations, uh, to take them before God and just uh, allow God to remind me how he is my good shepherd. He is my ultimate pastor who feeds and cares and, and, and pastors me. Um, and then my day goes on. And then something I've tried to add recently is around 5, 5.30 when I end work is to, is to commit what isn't yet done to God. Just hand it back over to him. Thank you that, you know, I can turn from it for the rest of the day. And ask for strength as I commute home back down the hallway uh, to be present as a husband and as a father. I mean, my work my work for the day really isn't done. I'm just on to like, the next work of God, if you would have it. Um, for supper, we'll usually try and have people over a couple times, two, three times a week. COVID, that's been uh, in the park. And I'll also try and go for a jog two or three times a week uh, to maintain my physical health. Uh, at the end of the day, Hazel will be in bed uh, by 7.30. And then after that, Sandra and I will usually recap the day uh, and pray together and then repeat. Um, and so that's what our daily habits look like. Does every day look like this? No. Does yours have to look like this? No, I already said that. But the purpose of this is, you know, some basic overview, uh, overview kind of things. Regularly take time to uh, stop and enjoy uh, the spirit. Be intentional uh, with friends and family. Invest in those relationships. Uh, take care of your health and your body with physical exercise. So those are daily habits. Then weekly habits. Um, a sort of standout feature of the weekly habit is the 24-hour Sabbath. And Sandra and I have been notoriously bad at uh, making a habit of this, at least until COVID-19 kind of just opened the door for that to be completely possible. And one of the reasons is taking a Sabbath is is difficult when you're in church uh, ministry on a Sunday. And so we would have to do that on a Saturday. And we're still doing that on a Saturday. Um, but one of the things that... Um, makes uh, Sabbath uh, stand out and fun for us is we, we start the day by going through the scripture that we're memorizing. And then uh, we'll, we'll go through a Bible chapter and we'll actually do sort of a family worship time. And I take out my ukulele and, and we'll play and we'll sing some songs. And 
I'm pretty awful at it, so you're never going to get an invite from me to you to be part of family worship, at least at this point. Um, but yeah, that happens in the morning. And then in the rest of the day, we try and go outside and do something together that's really life-giving, a sort of uh, juxtaposition, rest and worship together. And that really makes our Sabbath spe- special, not for just for us as parents, but um, for our kids as well, as young as they are. Oh, and Sabbath is also the day we usually try and get our date nights in. And then finally, monthly, um, I take a day of silence and solitude, um, a day of fasting, and we do are giving. And I feel like each one of these could be their own sermon in their own right, so we won't get into that. Um, but you might be wondering in all of this, okay, Jordan, that's, that's nice for you. How did you, though, how did you get there? How did you choose these habits? And there's sort of a story to this, which, okay, let's, let's tell it a, a bit. And here's what happened. Remember I told you of the mess I made in 2019 with my, my goals? Well, what happened late in the year last year was at some point Sandra convinced me to take a personality test. I just hate personality tests. But anyway, Sandra, Sandra did it. We were driving the car and she just filled it out and it was the Enneagram, if you know, personality test. And it's an interesting one in that it's based on desire and informed by the Christian uh, worldview. Um, and of course, the point of this personality test isn't to give you an excuse for your behavior, a sort of thing you can say, oh, this is my sinful behavior. I can just blame on my personality. No, it's not that at all. It's, it's a diagnostic. It's not a determiner. And so it says, these are ways with which your per- personality will express itself in unhealthy, sinful ways. And these are ways that it can express itself in, in healthy, uh, God-glorifying uh, ways. Uh, and so Sandra ran this on me, and I was like, oh, this is remarkably accurate. And then, and then I found this document online that actually matches your personality type with spiritual disciplines that help you move from expressing yourself in unhealthy to, to healthy ways, what they called both upstream and downstream practices. And watch out, this could be a sort of another tip, upstream and downstream practices. What are those? Upstream practices are practices that are like swimming upstream or paddling upstream. They're naturally very difficult for you. Downstream practices are things that come easy. They, they're, you know, yeah, yeah, that's life-giving. Yeah, that brings me a lot of joy. Um, and you'll notice in, in, in actually the last chapter of Pete Scazzaro's book that I find he, I like most of what he says, but he sort of takes, I think he's wrong in this, he sort of takes an approach of, you know, build, pick the habits that you enjoy. Pick the habits that you want, that you like. Um, but the reality is that if you just go for walks in the woods every day, you're never going to grow up into maturity in Christ. You actually need to pick certain habits that um, challenge you. And so I'll give you an example of this for uh, myself. One of the ways um, that my personality type expresses itself is through catastrophizing situations. Um, and if you haven't heard of that before, it's been described like this. It's like, you know those old video games, those little things you do, and, and you had the buttons at the bottom, and then you had the screen, and it's constantly moving. So there's the objects that are always coming down, and you're shooting them as they come onto the screen. Well, catastrophizing is where you're not just looking at what's on your screen. You're actually imagining beyond the screen what you can't see and what can go wrong there. Right, And so you're imagining everything that po- can possibly go wrong, even the things you can't even know, that you can't even plan for. Have you ever done that before? Um, and yet, of course, I knew. I, I, I knew I did. I wasn't super aware I did this. kind of knew I did this. But reading about it was like, I definitely do that. That's very true of my personality. Um, and yet, of course, the whole time, I knew that Jesus tells us, you know, don't, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, take the cares and the worries of today 
and give them to him, right? Cast your care on him, trust him. And yet I, I was finding that so hard. What did this suggest as a downstream practice? What is it the thing that would press into that? Well, the downstream practice um, was singing. And I was like, oh man, of course, that's one that comes really easy for me. The upstream practice they suggested, scripture memorization. I was like, not down with that. Yo, I hated scripture memorization as a child. I was, I was forced to do it. I did not like it at all. I'm just being honest with you. It's not the case anymore. But I hated this as a child, right? And so I saw that. I was like, this is a seriously going to be an upstream practice. Um, but the reason that this practice can, can confront my catastrophizing head on is because what it does is it anchors me in God's word and it anchors God's word in me, right? And so that... Um, Everywhere I go, no matter what sort of situation is causing me anxiety, I can, I can, because I've hid God's word deep in my heart, I can call it to mine, right? And I can, I can throw myself back on him. I can trust the truth of God and, and find myself secure in Christ. I can, I can quote scripture to myself and remind myself who I am in Christ because of the, I've memorized it and I can take heart. I can take courage. And this is why scripture memorization is so helpful to people like me who are anxious or who catastrophize and also singing as well. And that's why I've included them, as you now know, in my rule of life. And so this is the next tip. Consider your personality and how God made you and how you build your rule of life. Consider your personality. Um, God has made each one of us differences. What practices upstream or downstream can help you grow into that? Remember, some of the practices you like the least might actually be the ones that will help you grow the most. And so what are some very practical steps? Um, I'm going to um, throw a link on the sidebar for a sort of a breakdown, um, a workbook on building a rule of life by uh, John Mark Comer. Um, but he has these uh, five or four points or five points in it. First is start with where you're at, right? Write down the habits that you already have in a normal day. Just take out a piece of paper and write them down, good or bad. Actually, actually, to be very, very, very practical, you're probably not going to do that while I'm speaking right now. But what you can do is take out your phone and say, where am I going to book off several hours at least to, to go through this process? So, yeah, take out your phone and just do that right now. But now I'm going to take you through... Uh, yeah, there's five points from Comer here. And so the first one is start with where you're at. Write down the habits that you have. Just what are the normal habits in your, in your, in your life? And all of them, like I, I get up, I check my phone, I brush my teeth, da-da-da, this kind of thing. Next, work prayerfully through each uh, of the categories of life. Pete Scazzaro gives us four different categories. Prayer, rest, work, and relationship. And so as you think about those four different categories, um, think about what practices or habits do you want to add and what ones do you want to remove, right? And I know there are already practices and habits that you do have that are good, and so you can leave those. But what might you like to add or remove? Um, and give uh, practical examples for each category. Be specific. This is another tip. Be specific, right? It's so easy to say, um, take time to rest. But no, actually write in, this day is the 24-hour period where I will Sabbath, that kind of thing. Uh, next tip, so 
Start where you're at, work prayerfully through each of the four categories, and then you know, be specific in that. Consider the stage of life and discipleship you're in. I mean, if you have young kids, man, like, be kind to yourself. Start small. Start with what is actually possible. Your, your children, man, I know this from my children, allow your children to be like the bells of a monastery that ring continuously, reminding you to be present and in relationship. Does that make sense? I mean, just sort of integrate them right into your rule of life uh, in that way. And leave, leave time, Tip another tip, leave time for interruptions of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so start where you're at. Work prayerfully through each category, and I gave you some tips in that. Sorry, it's confusing. Three, stack your habits. Um, and so uh, that's where if you're already doing one thing, you can just add another thing alongside it. And the first thing reminds you to do the second thing. So if you already brush your teeth, now you can say, well, brush your teeth and read your Bible. And when you go to brush your teeth, you remember to read your Bible at night or whatever. And set it as weekly, uh, daily, monthly, and, and, and yearly habits. Do that. Um, but remember, another tip, keep it a working document. Like, like us, life is dynamic, things change over time. Um, and so put something down. Uh, so you've, you've gone through um, these, these things so far. Put something down um, and actually try and commit to it for a few weeks. And after a few weeks, come back and review it. And once you've reviewed it and refined it, actually then commit to it for three months to a year. Okay? So... Those are, those are the five practices. I know I had the five practices. I actually put tips in them, so it's confusing. So let me repeat them. Start where you're at. Work prayerfully through each of the categories. And Pete had prayer, rest, work, and relationships. Stack habits. And then review it in a month. Adjust it. And then reformulate it and commit to it. All right? And so that's how you build a rule of life. And... Um, that's cool. Maybe you've set some time in your schedule to, to be intentional and start thinking through that with a schedule in front of you. Um, but here's what I want you to know is that I'm willing to work with you on this. As your local pastor, this is, this is what I'm passionate about. I want to see you grow up into maturity in Christ. And so if I'm no expert on this, this is new to me too, right? But if you want help on formulating your rule of life, if you want someone to sit down and work through this with you, Shoot me an email, jordan.weeks at church21.ca. Or you can put it right in the chat. <laughs> uh, I want help, and I'll reach out to you. Um, but to end, <clears throat> to end, um, just a couple things. Don't let shame prevent you from doing this. Right? It's, it's so easy to say these sorts of things like, I'm just not the type of person who's able to order my life. I'm just not the type of person who can consistently spend time in the presence of God. That's for people who are serious about their faith. That's for people like Jordan because he's a pastor now or whatever. No, here's the point. Like, you don't need to impress me. You certainly don't need to impress yourself and you don't need to impress God, right? Before the cross, because of the cross, God has poured out his spirit on all believers, right? And that's, that's for as much for you as it is for me. And so before the cross, there's no shame to be had in this kind of thing. Allow the cross to actually, with joy, uh, bring you into a place where you'll create space to do this um, with the Spirit. And so don't let shame prevent you. And stop also waiting. I find this so common. You're just waiting for some big spiritual sort of experience to come, a sort of instant gratification moment that's just going to happen. It's just gonna, God's just going to sweep through your life and change through everything in an instant. I mean, 
No, God, in the vast majority of cases, just doesn't work that way. Most of the time, it's going to take time and patience for the Spirit of God to blow through all the caverns of your heart. And sometimes, and sometimes in this, we just need to be reminded, we just need to be given a vision of what a life looks like when lived with gospel intentionality. And it looks like this. That you can be a person so satisfied with the sufficiency of King Jesus that your life produces the fruit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness. You can become a person so filled with the Spirit pouring out his love on you that your heart always loves all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, the power of Christ is able to transform you to such an extent that your new normal, your default, becomes a Christ-like normal or default. Not perfection ever in this world, but real transformation. It's actually possible, and I think you need to be reminded of that. But it requires you taking and creating space in your everyday life to be intentional with Jesus. Let's pray. Spirit of God, would you move in our hearts right now to say, I will be intentional for you. That because of what you've done for me on the cross, because you have removed my disgrace, because you have removed my defilement, I want to live for you in every area of my life. Help me to live my life ordered for you so I can abide in you and experience more of your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.